and welcome to Geopod, a podcast where we look at all things spatial. It may not be rocket science, but it's geoscience. Today we'll be speaking to Amy, and Amy will walk us through what she does on a daily basis. And she'll also tell us about some interesting tools that you can use to visualize your data. Enjoy. Hi, Amy. Just maybe tell us a bit how and why you decided to go into geoinformatics. Oh, so I've always had a fascination for maps from a young age. You should see my childhood room. It's full of, full of old-fashioned maps and new maps and globes and everything. Joined with that, going into high school, I had my geography teacher, who actually turned out to be my neighbor, and she absolutely hated GIS. She, every time we started a GIS session, she'd say, ah, I hate this, but let's move on. And that sort of triggered me to be like, well, what actually is GIS? So I did a bit of research and it was joining maps and IT together. And I think that was the starting point. So I absolutely loved it. But knowing what it is in high school versus learning more what it is in varsity versus actually what it is when you start working, all very different things, but it worked out. So, yeah. So where do you work at the moment? So currently I'm working at Asia South Africa in the Cape Town branch and I have quite a dynamic job description. So I'm in the business intelligence department and basically I meet new clients and sort of go through the process of understanding what their business requirements are and then translate that into the GIS products. So for example, we have one of our clients is Engine and they have a requirement to meet with their regional managers to discuss what new things they want to put on their engine properties, such as a new steers or a new bathroom or a new tank or whatever. So they go through these processes where they submit their requests, but these network planners at the end of the day have to decide who gets what and what the budget is looking like. So we created a, a survey form that is embedded in a dashboard so that you can see what the users submitted as well as how the place is performing. So you can see, well, this place wanted a new steers, but they don't really have much foot traffic and a lot of people only come there for diesel. So then they'll make that executive decision to say, well, that's not really working out. So they'll decline that. And another example that we've done for engine as well is location intelligence to find new sites. So we've, we've joined growth potential LSM where the classes are higher than six. So for you to have a class of LSM class of six or higher, you have to have a car. So it makes sense that it's six and above. And then where your population class is high or above high and where the land use or the zone permits to having a new engine site, such as your residential or your business. So naturally not conservational or wild sections. And using all of those factors, we can run analysis through that to see where all the areas are that fit all those criteria. So all of that business intelligence, linking back up to another draft description that I do is finding new technologies. So I can't necessarily speak to new clients and discuss the business requirements without actually understanding our entire platform. So um, about every week or so, I follow up on all the new releases and the new capabilities that are released from the Esri platform. And then I make sure that I actually know and understand what each software does so that when I speak to the client, I know exactly what our platform can do. Um, is there anything that you do on the side that is um, related to your interest? 
I've learned that you can't do work 100% of the time. That'll drive you up the wall. Every time I have a downtime at work and I'm not necessarily attending to a client at the, moment, at the time, I'll go and endeavor on cool things that GIS can do. I think it was two or three weeks ago, I made an old fashioned map of, of the Western Cape. So I sort of just expand on what our platform can do just in fun, weird ways. Um, a while ago, I made a 3D globe and yeah, I just can see and stretch the limits of what GIS can do in fun, fun, weird ways. Yes, I mean, from knowing you and following you on especially LinkedIn in the past, I was telling them earlier about your map of Mars that you made a couple of years ago. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I saw the other day your map of South Africa that you did with the various projections. All those things are so interesting and it's very nice that yeah. you are so active in sharing your passion. Yeah, so that's that was, I was going to mention this down the line with regards to the job hunting process where you sort of have to make yourself stand out and you have to pick one thing. I've sort of gone along the lines of just making JS interesting. I mean, people in geology or just geography or environmental science, they sort of know what we do, but by making things interesting and showing them, like for example, the projections thing, they might not necessarily know all of the projections or how it works or or necessarily if they even overlap. So by doing that example, they could see, hey, actually it doesn't. And it gets them thinking about, am I using the right projection? Yeah, no, definitely. Then just to get back to your daily job, uh, you spoke a little mm -hmm. bit about um, your business intelligence. And one of the first things is requirements, understanding your job. Um, can you maybe give the audience an idea of what your process for a project looks like? So we have a project manager that assists us with this. We are very strict about following the requirements process. So we'll have a few introduction meetings to sort of understand on both sides, from our side, understanding their business requirements and from their side, understanding what we can deliver in terms of spatial needs. And thereafter, we put together a project plan of what they think, of what we think they want. And then that bounces back to them and they'll sort of sign off to say, okay, this this looks good, let's try this. And then we'll go into a proof of concept phase where we'll do a, a mock-up of what they think they want. And the user will go through a testing phase of, of actually pushing it through to the end users who actually make use of the product to see if this is what they need. And often it's not what they need because <laughs> when you say things, it's never the same as actually doing it. So then the user will come back to say, well, actually, I didn't want this notification being sent out by email. I actually wanted it by SMS. And can you change this? And can you change that? So then we'll go back to the design phase, which is step two. Yeah. And we'll redo, redo the document and it'll go back to the client for sign off. And we'll go back to us to update the proof of concept. We'll go back to them for testing. And then after testing's done, we'll go, and deployed to production. So we'll make it live and we'll include all the data. Often when you do proof of concepts, we only do a snippet of the data. The data is quite big. So we're looking at the whole of South Africa. So it's quite large. So we'll often just cut it to Cape Town or the Western Cape. So going live, we deploy it to the whole of South Africa. And then we start sharing it with the, with the internal staff as well. 
I definitely prescribe to that idea as well of taking a smaller piece of your data and trying to fix the problem for that before going to the larger problem. You spoke a lot about the iterative process. That's a very big difference between school and work or university (laughs) and working is that iterative process. It's never really done. It's not. If we went through a whole phase of back and forth with the requirements for a year with one of our clients, because we didn't understand what they were saying, but it was, it was very difficult because they didn't understand our platform and we didn't understand what they needed 100%. So there was a lot of miscommunication. So we went through a whole year of process of back and forth. I think they eventually dropped it. <laughs> yeah, no, communication is definitely key there. So yeah, that's why I think my role as a um, business intelligence person is critical in this instance where I'm sure you can imagine if you have a purely business like manager type role speaking to an IT person there's not going to be a lot of overlap there and a lot of miscommunication so I think it's key that somebody needs to be the translator between those two people yeah no it sounds like a very interesting and difficult position as well I think you need to be very outward facing and chatty <laughs> So we just want to know, how did you come to find your current job? Is there an interesting backstory or what? How did you get where you currently are right now? So I have to thank Yvette for this one. (laughs) Um, We were actually sitting at Serena's house, um, meeting up with the German students. Do you remember that, Victoria? Yes. (laughs) It was the (laughs) Boikikos or Brai or something. Yeah, Yeah, that one. And... I didn't know Yvette before that day. And then we chatted for maybe 15 minutes. And I was like, yeah, no, I'm looking to work in Cape Town. And she's like, well, I'm going there next week. And then while she was there, she spoke to my manager, my current manager here. And she's like, Amy's good. She wants to work here. And I think two weeks later, I got the job. Yvette stood up for me there, which is really nice. That's cool. Because I do think it's very important, that network of people that you are oh, yeah. and it's important it's to always critical. so currently um so i'm very active on linkedin and i make sure to only connect with people who are in my field obviously besides friends and whatnot just so that i can expand expand my network so for example i posted about the projections quite a while ago and somebody from hydrology commented because he wasn't really understanding the point so then we had a like a private chat just so I could explain exactly what's going on. And furthermore, I got to understand what his field is like and then he understood what my field is like. So it's, I think it's very key that you just speak to people. And I'm quite active on a few JS platforms. There's also a woman in geospatial hub out there at the moment. I'm not active on there, but I am reading what people's comments are and what other people, specifically women in geospatial are doing. I think it's super important that you just speak to people out there. Do you mind just telling us more about these GIS platforms that you're active on? Sure. So there's, there's actually three. So one of them was that Women in Geospatial. I think it's just a website. And a, okay. and then the second one is, is Facebook. <laughs> so there's a few groups out there that you can join in. Um, one of them is GIS for Geeks. A whole bunch of people just randomly comment or post interesting things that they find. And it really sparks discussion there. And then... The last one is ISRI internal. So we have a ISRI international chat room and there's a whole lot of, there's a lot of conversations there. So unfortunately that's for internal people, but I'm fairly certain that will exist in any organization that you move to. 
Yeah, it sounds quite interesting. I mean, it's always important to get yourself out there. I want to ask you, what are your do's and don'ts of job hunting? One of the biggest things I think is that you need to understand what you want to do. There are a lot of jobs out there, specifically in government, that pay you a lot, but that's not necessarily the job you want to land up in. Um, I know people who've ended up in government who actually just ended up doing admin jobs, and that's that's not the best, although you get paid quite a lot. So I think it's important that you, especially in the beginning of your career, that you find out what you want to do. Otherwise, you'll get bored and you'll probably leave JS, which is pretty sad. But beyond that, I think if you're looking at specific companies, then you need to research the company and as creepy as it may sound, connect to a few people from that company on LinkedIn and sort of chat to them to see to see what their day-to-day roles are like and their jobs are. So yeah, researching the company is important. You don't want to end up in a company where you are pushed down or you're stuck or you can't move up. It's one of the hardest things to work for a company if you can't move. I think those are my two to-dos. <laughs> and my, I don't think I really have a uh, don't do. I think at the the beginning, it's if you can find a job that that gets you going, then I think that's great. Yeah. So, would you say that the job hunting process can be a bit um, daunting or intimidating for first time job seekers? You know, such as graduates from university. Um, I was lucky, and I did not have an interview for for my current position. But I know people say this often, but you have to try and be yourself there's no point having an interview where you seem fake or you seem overconfident or whatever, because ultimately they'll see through that as daunting as it is. You need to remember that your skills will shine through and your personality will as well. So they'll, they'll see that. Let's do a little bit of uh, let's call it role playing. So you're the interviewer. So you're going to be asking me questions about whatever I do and whatnot. What is the first thing you look for when I walk into that room? presentable that I look you in the eyes and I shake your hand are you gonna just more be about my demeanor what did you focus on I think I'll actually focus on what you're trying not to do (laughs) as weird as that sounds like a lot of people try and make sure that they keep eye contact or make sure they shake firmly so make sure that sorry I'll look out for what you're trying not to do and it's actually quite obvious yeah okay that makes sense With all that's happening in the world right now, information and how it's visualized is extremely important. Could you please tell us a bit about your COVID-19 dashboard? Okay, so the process was very tedious. It took me, I think it took me a week to finalize this, only because I've noticed that when when you create these things, often you'll have an initial version of your database, and then you get to the front end when you start designing it, and you realize, that something's missing or something's in the incorrect format. Like for example, I went through a process of adding all my statistics only to realize that I put them into text fields and that didn't work. So I had to go back to the drawing board and make them longs, which means it started at the beginning. So although it took a week, my process currently is every day at midnight, I run a script to get yesterday's data. So it takes the totals at that point. So it's midnight GMT. I thought that was a pretty central time to run it. And then every five minutes, I run another script that pulls in the feature servicing from John Hopkins. I'm sure you saw that John Hopkins University dashboard. So I'm currently using their feature service that they've published. 
So I'll pull that in and update the current stats. My table will have yesterday's stats and current stats. And then I'll do my relevant calculations, such as calculating the difference from yesterday to today, as well as the death and recovery rate. But I, of course, need to make some provisions, such as the cruise ships don't have a location. So I had to check where, where the shape is null. I need to make it zero, zero. So currently it's sitting by the Horn of Africa. <laughs> and for some reason, US and Canada, their active numbers are zero. Don't know why, but I've had to go and put in some calculating provisions to make sure that that number reflects the true value. Um, so these scripts, so that script runs every five minutes. So the dashboard is pretty, pretty live. At some points, it's, it's more live than the John Hopkins one. Um, so that's the data side of things. More so on the design side. I think what, what led me to create this dashboard was the need to see what's changing. Because the number keeps going up of cases and deaths and whatnot, but you don't necessarily know who's contributing to those things. This goal, the goal of this dashboard was to sort of see who, who's racking up and telling in those numbers. And of late, it's America. <laughs> Scary. So the dashboard needed to be designed in such a way that the user can easily understand what's going on. Colors were coordinated, being green for recovery, orange for active, and red for confirmed. And it was laid out in such a way that you can easily sort of tab through the, the different topics. The, the symbology was fun. <laughs> Took me a while to find the image of the actual coronavirus, one that was transparent as well. But I think that it was a, it was a more so of a fun, a fun aspect to add to the dashboard. Also, um, one of my initial goals was for this dashboard was to make it polygons instead of points. But I noticed that this dashboard was created, sorry, the, the data was created of centroids of polygons. So for example, Mauritius is a whole bunch of islands. So the centroid sits in the sea. So it doesn't intersect with any polygons. And the same applies for, I think it's Somalia, where the point also falls in the ocean. So it's without intervening with the process, it's difficult for me to do a spatial join on the data to a polygon. Wow, so it sounds like you actually had a lot of work in that dashboard, quite interesting. I think we'll uh, link your dashboards, if you don't mind, into the contents or the comment section of this podcast so that everyone who's listening can actually go view them because they are very informative and quite visually pleasing. So now I just actually want to ask you, Amy, what are your favorite tools to use at the moment? So you're talking about your own script, using dashboards and stuff, but out of all the, um, the issue suite, what excites you the most? I, I think what excites me the most or my favorite tool to use is going to be scripting. It's, I didn't expect to do a lot of scripting or at least Python in, in my career, but it turns out I do it daily. So a lot of this, this Corona dashboard is purely scripting, obviously for a need for optimizing. Um, but sorry, before I answer this question, um, that's, so I wrote a preliminary script using Esri's tools. So what's it called? Model Builder. I pulled it in, I did a field calculate, I did a truncate and I did an append. And that script ran for three minutes. And then once I converted it into a script, it runs for 10 seconds. That's, that's just the power of Python. And that, that really makes my job a hell of a lot easier. And I would have to say that my favorite tool is, is scripting. That, that's quite nice to hear that you're actually talking about coding now because 
a lot of people think, oh, you know, GIS, I don't have to do coding. I can just sit in behind a computer and click a button here, click a button there. Yeah. But like you said, it automates your processes. It makes things better. I mean, by all means, you don't have to do any scripting. It's GIS really makes it possible for you to not script at all. But in order to fine tune and really make your, your process efficient, especially if you're having a, a product that's, that's live and operational, such as this um, COVID-19 dashboard, where people are really hitting, hitting that, that dashboard quite a lot. So you need to make sure that it's, that it's really, it's, it's up to date as quick as possible. Because if my script takes three minutes to update the data, it means that you can't see the data for three minutes. And if it updates every five minutes, you only have a two minute window to see it. Scripting really allows you to or speed things up, make it more efficient. But beyond that, you can really do anything with scripting because it's Python and Esri has its own ArcPy modules and libraries. Ah, the world's your limit. You can really do anything. No, that's nice to hear. Um, just one last quick question. Where did you learn Python? Was it at university? Did you teach yourself? How did you learn Python? Just so that anyone who's listening goes, realizes like, yo, Python's important. I need to learn. What can I do to make sure I know Python? So I've had a background of programming since high school. And I did the second year module for INF. It was a 270, INF270, I think. And then third year, I don't think we did any programming third year. And fourth year, sorry, honors, we had that internet JS module. But none of those really, really delved into the deep side of programming and only really learned when I got into the current job. So I sit with a whole bunch of developers in my office. And whenever I'd design something, one of them would sit down with me and sort of talk me through how to script it. And from that point, so once you learn how to do something, then it's easily applied to something else. Quite a while ago, I, I got taught how to do search cases. So it's a very quick way to search through your data set. And once I learned that, you can apply it to your update cursor and your insert cursor. So it's, it's easily applied to everything else. So I would have to say my colleagues helped teach Python. But there's also a whole bunch of online courses, which, which aids in the small bits of knowledge that you, that you would have missed out on otherwise. It's nice to hear that you're working in a work environment where your colleagues will take time to help you. Because I'm sure a lot of people like that, you know, coming from university where you're working group projects or you have good friends in class where you sit in and you're struggling and then they've managed and then they come help you. So it's nice to hear that that mentality is carried through to the work environment. Yeah, it's, it's really great. It's one of the things I really appreciate, appreciate about my current job. And Esri is moving more, more and more towards not necessarily open source, but scripting and development side of things, which is, which is great. Every time we release a new software tool type thing, mm. we release two, uh, uh, one just like um, front end side and then one for developers to sort of edit their way through it, which is which is really great because sometimes Esri can be super limiting in what it can and can't do. So to touch into the meteorology side of things, so my fiance is a meteorologist, even though he, he never did any programming in varsity at all, but his current day to day is scripting. I think this world is really just delving back into into automation, which is which is great. I love it. Definitely. Especially with the growing size of data as well. It's just, you don't really have an option. Yeah. <laughs> but also for, it doesn't, uh, size of data is key, but also if you are repeating something. Yeah. And like, 
if if your script runs every five minutes, then it can't be clunky. It has to be mm. it has to be neat. And if you're sharing a script with other people, it has to be readable. Thank you very much for for you, and thank you for your time. We really appreciate mm, it. Thank you. It's a pleasure. We'll chat thank to you very much. Thank you very much for tuning into this week's episode of Geopod. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at the Geopod. And if you enjoyed this podcast, tell a friend to tell a friend. And remember, it's not rocket science, but it's geoscience. Bye now.